0: Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Turfgrass Epistemology. I'm Travis Shaddix. It is February 6, 2024. I'm almost 48. A couple days. My birthday's coming up, so I'm getting more bald.er If that's a word, more bald. <laughs> the hair I have is
1: gray. My eyes are going, getting old. My body hurts. All those things, like wonderful things, that go along with getting old. Welcome. On this channel, we explore how we know what we know about turfgrass science, and based upon some interactions and some conversations I've had with some of the viewers, they've uh, many people find it intriguing that some of the information in the literature is um, different than what they expected. So that's sometimes the case. Sometimes it is what you expected. Wayne, Supertier, Lush, Andrew, Valerio, Rich, Brady, all good morning. Wayne, I I got your uh, comment, I got a comment from you Wayne yesterday about the manner in which I read some stuff, but it didn't show up for some reason in the comments of the video. But I did read your comments on my email, just so you know, and I will do my best to
0: take it under advisement and get better. What you what you mentioned is actually something I've noticed as well. So appreciate your critique, and I will try to do better.
1: Appreciate that, Ruth. I noticed for some reason it didn't show up in any of the video comments. I don't know why it does that sometimes, but
0: thank you, Randy. We got Bulgaria. We got Italy. We may have Canada on here somewhere. I'm not sure.
1: New England. I mean, oh, happy birthday, Randy. It was your birthday yesterday. We're going over nitrogen for this month and maybe part of next month. There's a couple of important papers that I want to go over that the author is not available until probably next month. So I might might wait and Prolong it a little bit. I might throw in some potassium papers in there while I, um, while that author works out her schedule. Um, I, I, what it comes down to is oftentimes the authors better able to explain what they did in their study and, and and it prevents me from unintentionally messing up their paper. (laughs) So that's not what I want to do. So, um, so we'll be going over response of turf grass to various nitrogen sources today. This paper's a little bit easier than yesterday's paper. Yesterday's paper. I was afraid I'd mess it up and I kind of did in the middle of it, so there's just a lot to it. These older papers in the 70s and 80s of slower-release nitrogen sources. I mean, slower-release nitrogen sources have been around for thousands of years, but primarily natural organics. And then whenever the sulfur coats came on and they reacted nitrogen sources came on there was a lot of work done with that and then in the 80s actually i think one of the first polymer coats was actually much earlier than that i'll have to look it up but it was much much earlier than you would think but it didn't they didn't really commercially become available until the 80s and 90s and so some of these 80s and 90s papers have products in them that aren't available today they were experimental and the companies were working out the kinks and all these things And today's, yesterday's paper had a lot of products that are no longer available. And today's paper has several products that are no longer available and probably never were available. And so, but I've sort of sectioned those off a little bit. I'm just highlighting the products that are generally available today. So today's paper I'm hoping is a little bit easier to follow and I don't screw it up as much as I did the one yesterday, basically. We're going to be talking a lot, about natural organics today. Again, if you were on the channel, if you watched yesterday's video, the the article had some pretty strong evidence in there to indicate that natural organics, at least the ones that they looked at, weren't resulting in the turf grass response relative to the other nitrogen sources that many people might think would occur. They resulted in acceptable turf grass after some time, but relative to other nat- other nitrogen sources, the natural
0: organics didn't really do well. And today's paper is no different. The paper on Wednesday is no different. <laughs> I don't know why people are, are so um,
1: or why YouTube is so saturated with this concept of using natural organic nitrogen sources. we got to use bone meal and feather meal and biosolids and All these other things. I'm not sure where all that came from, but it sure as hell didn't come from the scientific literature, I'll tell you that much. I mean, clearly they work, but how well do they work relative to other options is is the more important question. And when we look at how, when we look fairly at how those natural organics compared to other nitrogen options available to us, in many cases, we find that they don't perform, meaning they don't result in a turf grass response as frequently or as, as you know, however you want to measure it, as other nitrogen sources. <clears throat> so the longevity generally isn't as long as other nitrogen sources. The upfront response, turf grass response, is nowhere near as quick as other nitrogen sources. The cost of these natural organics is skyrocket high. I mean, they're way higher than any other nitrogen sources, not even close. Like, you know, four to six times as expensive as, as other nitrogen sources. And um, we'll talk about that on Wednesday night. And I did get a couple comments from one of the viewers wanting me to discuss the deleterious effects of natural organics, meaning some of the natural organics contain
0: or used to contain compounds that were concerning like heavy metals and so forth. And
1: that's fine if you want to go down those roads and explore those those, you know, um, whether or not there's heavy metals in natural organics and biosolids or however. I mean, I'm not saying there is. I'm not saying there's not. I'm just saying that I'm a turf grass soil scientist. I don't study heavy metals in natural organic fertilizer production. So I'm not a specialist in that, but what I am a specialist in is soils and turf grass response. And so I take the angle of, let's look at what happens when you apply these products to to the turf grass. And there's not really a whole lot to support it. I mean, you're going to see a response. You're probably going to see acceptable turf. But when, you know, like I said, you're not, we're not overly concerned about that per se. We're trying to see what is the most efficient method of producing a product you know, acceptable lawn, acceptable
0: football field or fairway. And we have to compare that to other sources. And natural organics rarely compete.
1: So, if your if your angle is we should stop using biosolids because they're contain contaminants or whatever. I'm not saying that. If that's your angle, then explore that and you know, if you want to use that, use that. I don't know if it's true or not true. But what I do know, is that agronomically the turf grass is as good or better using other nitrogen sources in many cases, and in many cases it's less expensive to use a different source. So, any biosolid manufacturers wants to do a commercial on my channel, I'm sure that just eliminated that. <laughs> um. <coughs> Andrew Burris, you are getting me to rethink my whole lawn care approach. You say in chat. Well, good. I mean, they all the, you you may have the most perfect lawn care program imaginable. I mean, I'm not saying you don't. You very well may, um, but that shouldn't stop us from critically thinking about about it. You know, with each step, with each management practice, with each product, with each service you provide, so forth. You know, just ask yourself. You know, do I have a good reason for it? critically think your way through. And if your good reason is, well, I'm I'm applying lime because we've always done it. It's not a good reason. If you if your good reason, if your reason you're using you're trying to lower pH is because I've always heard it needs to be between 6 and 7. That's not a good reason. You know, so just critically think your way through. What what why am I applying this? Why why am I applying phosphorus in my fertilizer? Why am I applying so much potassium in my fertilizer? How do I It's epistemology. How do I know? that I need to apply that much. Well, they had it in stock, or everybody's doing it. All those are, are bad reasons. So if I'm getting you to rethink your, your lawn care approach, Andrew, that's one of the best compliments I could receive. So thank you. I'm not saying your approach is wrong. I'm just saying I'm hoping that you're critically thinking your way through there, and that's oftentimes going to require you
0: to question you know, what you're doing. Yeah, Lush and I had a little chat last night. Thank you for that, Lush. We we
1: had a little chit chat, and um, hopefully it was helpful. <clears throat> uh, so, Andrew, do I do today? Do we get to hear more about my love for Milorganite? I don't <laughs> I don't have any problem with any product, but if my if our goal is to become is to progress and become more efficient at turf grass management, one of those goals is to find a a nutrient management program that results in our desired outcome, whatever that desired outcome metric is for you, for the least amount of environmental and financial cost. So that's the metric I put on it. So how much does it cost you to do it financially? And then does that exceed some environmental limit? You know, so it could it be the least expensive source, but it causes a tremendous amount of potential environmental risk, then obviously that would be a problem. Um, and vice versa. If it, it had no environmental risk, but it costs 10 times as much, that would also be a problem for business. So that's sort of the two metrics that I use when I'm evaluating nitrogen sources or any source, potassium sources, phosphorus sources. What's the likelihood of a turf response? Do I need to apply it and how much does
0: it cost? And that's what we're doing here, really, going through all this literature. It makes you feel good to use a green source product. Lush, I'm not sure what you mean by that, like a
1: natural product. Um, That's probably the case, if that's what you're saying, that's probably the case with the majority of consumers, is that they'll say, well, I'd prefer to use a natural organic because I'm concerned about the environment. And my response would be, if you're concerned about the environment, s- stop applying phosphorus so much, because natural organics have a, usually have a lot of phosphorus in them. You shouldn't be applying any phosphorus unless there's a known deficiency. One, financially, because you don't need to. You're wasting your money. But two, environmentally, you increase the potential for environmental risk. So I get that a lot. Like natural organics, they're natural, natural. That, that's a known fallacy. It's appealed to na- nature. You know, an appeal to nature is you prefer to use this specific product because it's natural or because it comes from nature. And that alone is not a valid position to hold. It's, it's a flawed position. Because there's many things that come from nature that are a problem, if not, a, if not used correctly. So, for example, natural organics, like biosolids, I guess, would be an example where you have phosphorus in it. But it could be any natural organic that contains phosphorus. If you apply it, Based upon the rate of N, and you think you're doing something good for the environment, I can assure you the evidence doesn't support that. And I'm, I'll be happy to go into that in great depth. Um, but if you're applying it based upon the rate of phosphorus on locations that are that is phosphorus deficient, then the evidence would support that. Right. So it's not necessarily anything wrong with the product; it's just the manner in which it's used and marketed. Oftentimes is is Unwise, I should say. Okay, back to the article. Today's is, is, the title is "Response of Turfgrass to Various Nitrogen Sources" by Landshoot and Waddington in 1987. This was published in Soil Science Society of America Journal. And for those of you who might not necessarily be familiar with that, this journal is at the top of the list when it comes to soils. Um, I think I have one article in that journal somewhere. And so it's a, it, this is one of the journals for the Tri-Societies of uh, Agronomy, Crops, and Soils. You can go to soils.org, crops.org, or agronomy.org, and ex- you, can all, you can search all their journals for free. All, all the articles that are uh, available through that, those, that Tri-Society are available to search for free. Many of them are available to download for free. These older articles are very likely not available for free. They started doing open access journal fees if you wanted to do that not too long ago. So the older articles are probably not available uh, for free, but you can go and read the abstract. You can search for them. And that's the way you get this. You can always go to the library and very likely access these things, these articles for free as well. But Peter's still at Penn State. Does a lot of good work there. And this paper is uh, one of his early papers I, I actually didn't even know peter had a paper back in the 80s and uh, this work was done in 82 83 84 so he uh he has the appearance of being a y- much younger man <laughs> than, he, than he than he actually is apparently he's very senior and he doesn't uh, doesn't look that he looks very young anyway we're going to be talking about a lot of different nitrogen sources, and in this paper, we're going to, I'm going to highlight only a few that are probably pertinent to what we would encounter today. Okay, and um, uh, good morning, Polo. This is what we'd, ca- we'd encounter today. You can look at the other, article, the other components or products if you want to. It's not a problem. It's just that they're, they're not available, and it's kind of pointless to talk about them if you can't go buy them. And so I've just I just I'll kind of skip past those. For those of you who may, may be new, I read the read these the introduction, kind of set the stage, and I'll go through the scientific article and try to interpret it as best I can for the layman to understand. Sometimes as scientists, we uh, lose sight of the average person. Um is uh <laughs> it's gonna be difficult to read some of this scientific
0: jargon. Hang on, let me fix one thing real quick here. Uh let's see. Let me do this. There we go. And one second, guys. I've been adjusting some of
1: my setup here, and sometimes I'm questioning whether I should do that or not. Okay. I think we're all running. Okay. So, response of turf grass to various nitrogen sources, Soil Science Society of America, 1987, by Landshut and Waddington. Nitrogen fertilization is one of the most important management practices in turf culture. Since there are a variety of management situations in turf culture, nitrogen sources with different properties and release characteristics can be an asset to turf managers to avoid misuse and possible detrimental effects on turf. I'm sorry, period. To avoid misuse and possible detrimental effects on turf, new nitrogen sources should be tested under field conditions before being recommended for general use. Now, I completely agree with that. (laughs) I would say... Oftentimes today, that's avoided. So, for example, there may be new products like protein hydrolysate that shows up on a derived from tag. And there may be some incidental research done. There's probably a lot of research done at the company level. But whether or not it's done by an independent so- resource like a university is secondary. I mean, I don't know how much of that is done before the product actually gets released. Um, There's other nitrogen sources, some companies actually not out of business, where they're using a waste stream and precipitating out some nitrogen sources and reacting it and using that. And all those may be useful, but it seems like today we don't do near as much initial research before those products come to market. So I agree with Peter on this statement. And they, they need to be investigated because we need to know how they release, we need to know what factors affect the release so that we can provide proper best management practice recommendations, the rates. So, for example, um, a perfect example of this is polymer-coated urea. I'll leave the brand names out of it, but there's one polymer-coated urea that's very well known. And when it was released, it was given to the company, and the company didn't really know how to apply it correctly. So in, so they, applied, they started incorporating little small amounts of it in with soluble nitrogen, thinking that, well, 20% or 30%, you can get some slow release. When in reality, that particular source should not have been applied that way. It needed to have a large component of the, of the blend of the nitrogen from the slow-release polymer coat because the manner in which it releases requires that. And you need to have a big chunk of it in there in order to have sort of a blanket of slow release as, oppo- as opposed to like a sulfur coat that kind of releases differently. And that company, even to this day in the state that it was released in, is still struggling trying to recondition the customers to don't just put in 20% or 10% or 15% because it's not really gonna provide you much value. You need to put in a pr- pretty decent amount, a percentage, and that company in that particular state, not so much outside of that state, but in that particular state, is still struggling trying to get their customers to apply the product in more in line with the manner in which it should be applied. And the reason was it wasn't really investigative. and and, and to a great extent before it was released. So this paragraph, I agree with Peter. We need to do the research before the release so we have some confidence in our recommendations. Okay, the objective of this study was to determine the turf response to several nitrogen sources using the criteria of turf color yield and nitrogen uptake. This study was conducted from July 1982 until September 1984. So we have the growing seasons of 1982, 83, and 84 at the Turfgrass Research Center at Penn State at uni- in University Park, the turfgrass used was one-year-old Marion, Kentucky bluegrass. So that's the setting. We're in Kentucky. I'm sorry. We're in Pennsylvania using con- uh, Marion, Kentucky bluegrass in over a three-year period. That's like two-and-a-half-year period, really, because it's a cool-season grass. Okay. The, the products they used, they broadly identify them as urea formaldehyde reaction products and then they they, have, they, have, they separately from that they have IBDU and oxamide I'm not going to talk about oxamide or IBDU because oxamide's not really available and IBDU is not really available much anymore. Then they have sulfur coats and they have natural organics millorganite and then a sludge that they a sludge compost that they they had. They, I don't know if they've made it or what, but and then they have combination products. These are the the broad uses of the categories they investigated. Within the urea formaldehyde reaction products, they had some products that aren't available, like this fluff and fluff plus and tough and fan, all these acronyms. I'm not really going to talk about a whole lot about that, but I am going to talk about a little bit about ureaform powder, which is known as powder blue. That's still known today, this nitroform powder blue. That's still around, or you can still find it. And then the methylene urea. So the formalene was provided by Hawkeye Chemical Company, and methylene urea was an O.M. Scott and Sons urea, or Sons. So they have methylene urea, and then they have a, ureaform powder so i will talk a little bit about those but i'm not going to talk about the other other fluff, fluff plus and all the other stuff because they make a point in saying it, it even says right here we experimental formulations that were not available for application so there's no point in talking about it and i'll skip ibdu mostly in the Oxym. i won't talk about that a whole lot the scus i will talk about the sulfur coats the commercial sulfur coat products were from canada so you'll see the cil C- canada industry ltd that's the C that's the Canadian SCU. And then you'll see AIM, which is the Ag Industries Manufacturing Sulfur Coat. And then there's some experimentals from the old Tennessee Valley Authority that um are, are denoted as TVA, and then they have like TVA 25C for coarse and and TVA 15F for fine and all these other things. So they have the very the the number stands for the particle size, I believe, and the C stands for the again, the particle size coarse or fine, so like 15 is, and it says TVA SU15F stands for
0: fine, and the particles made, uh, the particles, Wait a second here, particles made with the, oh, I thought it's
1: passed a six mesh screen. Yeah, yeah, the S, uh, the six, I think, it means it went through the, that, that size mesh screen, so it gives you an idea of the particle size. Anyway, there's a variety of different sulfur coats in here. There's a lot. There's, I don't know, three or four different sulfur coats that they looked at. The natural organics were a malorganite, which is an activated sewage sludge produced from Milwaukee Sewage Commission. And sludge compost supplied by Del Kim Sales was an experimental made by composting, digested sewage sludge, and household refuse. We're going to find that this sewage sludge was not useful at all, but it was an experimental. You know, what are you going to do? The combinations, they had two combinations. I'll talk about a little bit in here. Two complete fertilizers were supplied by Lebanon Ch- Chemical Company, a 30, this would be a two nine or something like that, MP, MP205K20, with 50, 30% and 20% of the nitrogen from soluble sulfur coated urea form. So this was a blend of 50% soluble and then this, the slow release had a blend of sulfur coated urea form in there. And then they had another combination which was an 18 probably an 1839, something like that, with 50% soluble in and 50% from urea form. So one of them had 50% soluble, and then the, the the slow was mixed between sulfur code and urea form, and the other one was 50% soluble with all of it from urea form. And then four additional treatments were obtained by mixing urea with slow-released nitrogen source. Urea was dissolved in water prior to mixing with the sludge compost, and the mix was allowed to air dry prior to spreading. I guess they just did that to kind of get it uniformly it was a sludge compost so they just kind of made sure it was uniformly distributed in the product and then dried it nitrogen sources were applied on five occasions two times each growing season except in 1984 at two pounds of nitrogen per thousand so application dates were july so it's two two pounds of nitrogen per application and then two times per growing season, except in 1984. And the application dates were the 1st of July or the 1st of September 1982, the middle of June or the middle of September 1983, and the, or the 1st of June 1984. So roughly, they're splitting at the beginning of the summer and the middle of the summer or towards the, the latter end. Well, actually, September, so it would be, yeah, be the beginning of fall. So the beginning of summer and the beginning of fall. That's
0: the way they did the applications, the dates. And then they applied triple superphosphate and KCL as a blanket application to supply phosphorus and potassium. Oftentimes we'll
1: do that in research. Just even if the soil is probably adequate in phosphorus and potassium, we'll just apply it just to make sure there's not ever gonna be deficient. It says up here the pH of the soil was 5.5, and there was hundred and, so that'd be uh, about 70 pounds per acre of Bray-1 extractable phosphorus. And i don't know if i've ever seen exchangeable potassium denoted this way but i'll leave that out i don't know what so they didn't do extractable potassium they did exchangeable potassium regardless the cec was 12. so we're dealing with an acidic soil that had plenty of phosphorus anyway they applied phosphorus and potassium just to make sure they weren't deficient it's very common criteria used for evaluating Evaluation were turf color ratings, clipping yields, and nitrogen uptake. So those are the three metrics we're going to look at today. Turf color was determined weekly by visual observation on a scale of 0 to 5 using half units, with 5 representing the darkest green and 0 representing straw color.
0: Turf growth was measured weekly by weighing fresh clipping, fresh clippings collected. The, um,
1: the Curve quality scale. It went from zero to five, and then just did half units. Nowadays, we do one to nine, and we do whole units. I guess you could do half units. I don't know. People
0: probably do that, but he'll do zero to five, and then I don't. Oh, and then he used
1: less than three was unacceptable. He'll he'll say that later on, where it's basically the same thing from one to nine, and six is minimal acceptable. It's just on a smaller scale actually actually technically on the same size scale, if you're doing half units and you're doing one to nine on whole units, regardless um that's how they did color and they did clipping yield and then in, inclusive sampling dates for the growth periods were the first of July through sept the first of September in eighty two and then uh so and then September through october nineteen eighty two so he they picked out sections like like months at a time, and they i guess they pulled those together and called that section of that time period of growth. You know month this month period that month period and so forth so they did september middle of september through the end of october in 82 and then they did may uh through the first of june in 83 and then june through the middle of september 83 and then september through october 83 and so forth so they did like a summer period of growth and fall period of growth and so forth each year and that's the way they collected the clippings and measured the growth for those periods of
0: the year the leaf tissue was measured through Kjeldahl nitrogen, for those interested. Uh, color
1: ratings, clipping yields, and nitrogen uptake were analyzed using analysis of variance. For those interested in the stats, they compared using the Waller-Duncan least significant difference test today. We, that, that's probably very common back then. It's perfectly fine. Today they probably would do something different, but that's all how we progress. But nothing wrong with that, but they did. Experimental area was irrigated only when initial signs of wilt appeared. For those of you interested in water, approximately a half an inch of water was applied on the 23rd of July and the 24th of August and the 8th of September 1983. So oftentimes we'll do that where we don't we don't we don't in general whenever we're doing a study, particularly on nutrients or whatever herbicides or spraying something out. We, we're going to apply water nowadays based upon like a, what's referred to as reference ET. So generally speaking, we generally try to apply water around like an 80, 75%, 80% reference ET. So that the point is is that we're, we're not over-applying water. We're removing everything through the soil. And we're not under-applying water where the turf grass is stressed. That would result in a response that's not representative of our treatment. Okay, so we, don't, we want to minimize the water effect because we wanna make sure that we were, we wanna minimize every effect that we're not measuring. We wanna do everything we can to get the grass growing well so that there, any turf response we see to our treatment is is true, basically. And that that's the only thing we're measuring. So the extreme example of that would be like in the middle of a study, if you have a lightning bolt hit your turf grass or hit your, let's say you're doing tree research, let's say you're doing apple research, and you have a lightning bolt hit it and destroy the tree, You'd have to remove that because it's not representative of your treatment, right? You may have had a treatment on that tree, and now the tree's dead. And then you, you wouldn't include that and say, well, the tree died. Well, the, you know, if you, <laughs> it's not representative of your treatment. So the same thing goes with water. If you don't manage the water correctly and the, and the grass dies or part of your plots die, and you say, well, these plots were dead and the turf quality was zero, that wouldn't be representative of your treatment. And so generally, the water is, is critical. And this is one reason, again, while I, I know there's a good argument to be made contrary to my position, my position is still pretty strong, I think, when it comes to not encouraging people to go out and do their own research. Because if you're not managing the water correctly, I don't care how accurately you think you are with your water, it's not going to be uniform across one part of your plot to the other part of your plot or your research area. It's not going to be. No matter how good you do it, there's going to be a a difference in moisture content from one part to the other part, and we know that in research, and we do our best to account for that and to manage it. But when you put the the weight of the of research in someone's hands who doesn't know what they're doing and they see a response, you have. I'm convinced you're not going to have any. I wouldn't have any confidence in it because I don't know how you did what you did. I don't know if you accounted for everything. And the one thing that I can assure you is probably going to influence it more than anything is your um control of the water and so when i'm just harping on that to say you know don't put a lot of confidence on things that you put out and that you see unless you're properly trained on that okay because in this case they're not they're they're intentionally applying water in a very specific manner when they see a little bit of wilt they start they apply a known amount of water to prevent that all right if they just applied water every day then it would probably move the nutrients down and cause some effect that's, that's
0: not representative of the treatment we're trying to measure, okay? All right. So we will go to the results. So before we get to the results, just to set the stage, so
1: we got a whole slew of treatments. There's a, there's a list here. And you can see all the treatments here on the left. And for those people listening, table one has, I don't know, 20-something treatments in it. But we're only going to be looking at a urea treatment, an ammonium nitrate treatment, methylene urea, and then this is the powder blue treatment, this ureaform powder. And then we're, we're going to skip all this oxamide because they're not available. And then we're going to go down to the uh, these these treatments. We're going to talk about the sulfur-coated treatments and then the mixture treatments and millorganite and so forth. So this is the way we're going to approach this today. And if you want to see all the results from the other things, feel free to download the article and and look at that. But to me, it's kind of pointless because they're not available to buy. So so we're in Pennsylvania. We're looking at a variety of nitrogen sources on Kentucky bluegrass in 1982, 1983, and 1984. We're looking at turf quality, we're looking at growth rate, and we're looking at nitrogen uptake. So for those people who um, might be uh, used to seeing YouTube videos about, uh, if you, you're applying ammonium sulfate or you're applying urea, you're going to have to apply it every two or three weeks or four to five weeks or four to six weeks compared to if you apply natural organic or millorganite or sulfur coat, you only have to apply it every 12 weeks or pick some date 16 weeks or whatever. They're going to measure that in here <laughs> as am I on Wednesday night. And We'll just, I don't know what your response will be, but this, what, what the results are in this paper are pretty consistent. It was the same thing from last night, pretty consistent in the literature. This concept, I'll show a video on Wednesday night where a gentleman's saying, well, if you're going to use this particular slow release, you're going to have to apply it every four to six weeks, which, uh, which might be true. It's a, I'm sorry, a soluble nitrogen source. It's probably, maybe true. But the point is, then he says, well, you need to apply If you did that with this four to six week, if you did it with a slow release, milorganite in that case, what he's talking about, you don't have to do it every four to six weeks. You can do it, you know, whatever length of time he said. And I'm sorry, but the evidence just doesn't support that. And the evidence in this paper won't support it either. And we're going to talk about that. So we're looking at turf grass quality, growth rate, and nitrogen uptake. There's also this concept sometimes, and sometimes you will actually see this in the literature, but there's this other concept where you're going to use slow-release nitrogen because it's more efficient. The, nit- the, the, the nitrogen use efficiency is going to be greater using these slow-release nitrogen sources. And so- sometimes you'll see that, but sometimes you won't. And this paper is one of them. <laughs> There's, there was more nitrogen uptake from the soluble in this particular paper. We're going to find that today. Okay. So there are good reasons to use these slow-release materials. But in this paper, we're going to find that the good reason isn't because the quality is going to be greater the good reason isn't because the nitrogen uptake is going to be greater okay so <laughs> you know I don't, to me this is all common i don't know how you guys how it's received by you all but i just it just there's just not a whole lot of meat on that bone when it comes to you must use slow release materials because of x y and z you know whatever the case is <laughs> okay so the results and discussion Color and growth response, both color and yield data were expressions of the nitrogen availability from the various nitrogen sources. Conclusions based on one criterion were supported by the other. So what he's saying is there was a relationship pretty strong between color and yield and, uh, and it's a, you know an, ex- an expression of the nitrogen availability and they were, they were very strongly related. One, one didn't happen without the other. Color didn't go up without quality or without growth rate going up. Color is an important component of turf grass quality. Thus, color ratings shown in figure two are an indicated indication of relative quality as well as nitrogen availability. So he's going to put a lot of weight on the quality rating, color rating, and in, in in an attempt to explain or describe the value of the nitrogen to the turf grass. And I, I do as well. I put a I put a fair amount of weight on color and quality. Primarily because that's the metric most people care about in our industry. If most people cared about clipping yields you know and we got to have as many clipping yields as we possibly can and then I would care about that but in most cases it's the performance of the turf grass which is generally measured by quality or color and they and he does the author here Peter does the same thing here I don't know if his opinion is any different from when he wrote this but um, he, he says the same thing here basically color ratings here it is color ratings less than three are considered unacceptable for good quality turf grass. So we'll see that in here. I'm going to use that in a minute when I'm going through these these uh, graphs. Yield and color responses to urea and ammonium nitrate fertilization were similar. Urea, which is more widely used in turf grass, was selected as the soluble source for comparison with other treatments in Figure two. So they, you're not going to see ammonium nitrate on the figures because the response between ammonium nitrate and urea were the same. Pretty straightforward, so they just chose because urea is more common urea is the one they're going to put on the on the graphs, and they're going to use that as a com- to compare the other nitrogen sources too now when we're going to talk- show these graphs you can see it up here in the top right hand corner of the screen here when we're going to, when we're going to look at these graphs there's going to be a couple things I want to make sure we're aware of and this goes with most quality graphs is that you're going to see At least minimum of three things: the magnitude of response from urea, the longevity of response from nitrogen sources, the longevity of response from nitrogen sources, and then where that lies relative to the minimum acceptable limit. Okay, so let's say the the response to urea was greater than I don't know whatever sulfur coat, but neither one of them resulted in acceptable turf grass. Let's say that let's say that happened. You need to be aware of that you wouldn't say, "Well, I need to use urea. Urea is the only one I need to use." Well, neither one of them resulted in acceptable turf grass, and we got a problem with both of them. Okay, it's so we have to use these in relation to each other. Let's say one of them, oh, this one was had a greater uh, urea resulted in greater quality compared to sulfur coat. Well, n- let's say that's true, but let's say the the sulfur coat was acceptable and it was acceptable for a longer period of time relative to urea. Let's say that happened, um, then. You might want to consider using sulfur coat because while the magnitude might have been better from urea, the the magnitude was fine from sulfur coat, and the longevity was longer from sulfur coat. Then, then that that's a good reason. You know that that would be a good argument to use sulfur coat instead of urea. Okay, so that's what I want you to think about when we're going through these graphs because we're going to spend a fair amount of time on these these response graphs. Okay.
0: Okay, so let me I'm having some problems today with this. Logistics here. Okay. Yeah, every time I click on this, it disappears. Yeah, never. I'll figure it out later. Okay. So, they used urea as the comparison because urea and ammonium nitrate were identical. Let me see. Go back up
1: here. So, color and growth responses from the urea formaldehyde reaction products generally reflected the amount of water and soluble nitrogen and the type of methylene urea compounds compounds present. As the amount of water and soluble nitrogen in the formulation increased, longer-chained methylene ureas were present in the initial response, and the initial response decreased. So the longer-chain methylene ureas exist, the slower the product is, and the slower the product is, the the, the less likely you're going to see a response at the beginning. Okay, So the longer-chain ureas were present, and then the initial response decreased the longer the chain the methylene urea was. very common in the literature. Based on
0: color ratings and clipping yields, I'm going to skip that because it has the fluff thing in there. We're not going to talk about that. Um, uh, Okay, I'm going to skip through
1: that. I'm going to go back to the tables and graphs and I'm going to basically discuss all this stuff in the tables and graphs. I think it's probably
0: better done, easier to understand. Yeah, because this talks about oxamide stuff. I don't know why I highlighted that. Yeah, I'm going to skip through all that stuff. So let me just go to the. Let me just go to the figures. Okay,
1: so the figures. So we're going to talk about figure two. This is a comparison of color ratings of Marion, Kentucky bluegrass fertilized with various various nitrogen sources. I'm going to start at the top left hand corner here. I'm going to zoom in here as best I can guys and gals. And we're going to talk about these graphs. Now in each one of these graphs, the x-axis is the time frame. So we're looking at Uh, July, August, September, and October of 82, and then May, June, July, August, September, October of 83, and then May, June, July, August, September of 84. So we're looking at months, okay? And the y-axis is the color rating between one and five. And remember, three is going to be the minimum acceptable limit. Okay, so if you want to know what the difference is between urea and powder blue, this powder blue is extremely fine powder. It's actually a dried product extremely fine and you it's a suspension you put it in a liquid water and it stays suspended in the water and it'll go through your screens it won't it's not a soluble product per se it's uh still a dried methylene urea or i guess urea form and um it'll it'll you can spray it out okay so it's a dried powder that can be sprayed out and in this particular graph we're looking at the effect so we're going to see the effect from urea is the is the dashed line and remember going from 82 all the way to 84 here, months, okay? And when you see these little dots, that's when they applied the product. I think that's how they denote it. Yeah, fertilizer application is the dots. I like the way they denote that. So when you see a dot here at the beginning, that's when they applied all the products, okay? And you'll see this the, this peak from urea. come. It's at, it's, at a, it's at a 5. It's at a 5 at the beginning. And after application, you see it start to decline a little bit from 5. and goes down to about 3. And then they apply more nitrogen and then it goes back up to about four and a half or five. And then over time, it goes back down to about three or three and a half. That's what happened with urea. Okay. During the same time period, the powder blue, which was applied at the same rate of nitrogen, was applied and it, it was started off at around a two and a half. It went up to acceptable limits in the first two or three weeks of following application. And then it went right back down to two. So it was unacceptable. And then they applied it again. It went right up to barely acceptable limits and then back down again. So the majority of um, the time on the first application of powder blue, the turf grass was unacceptable, whereas the same amount of nitrogen from urea remained acceptable the entire time period. After that first cycle, if you want to call it that, the first season, they applied powder blue the next season and it started off again, as did urea, start off again, unacceptable. And the urea went back up to acceptable limits, to five, whereas the powder blue was right at three, three and a half. So you're well above acceptable limits using urea, and you're struggling that second uh, cycle to keep the turfgrass at acceptable limits using the powder blue product. And then again, it goes back down until the, then, until the next application in 1983. And the, the, the turfgrass response to urea went back down again as well there until the next application in 1983. And then they applied it and look at the turfgrass turf response to urea. It goes back up to five, whereas the turfgrass response to the powder blue product, the urea didn't even become acceptable in the second year, in the second application of the second year. It didn't even was not even acceptable. In the last year, we saw a similar response where the powder blue product was unacceptable. The Turquoise response to powder blue was unacceptable. It got up to acceptable limits a little bit after the application, and it just hung on there, barely at acceptable limits, probably a little bit below acceptable limits for the remainder of, this, of the period. Urea went up to 5 after the application and then quickly went back down probably what would that be? That'd be June, July, probably the end of July. It was unacceptable. So the majority of the time during three years, turfgrass response to urea was acceptable. It went unacceptable after that once the nitrogen started to um, deplete itself, and the turfgrass took it up, it became unacceptable. And after application, it became acceptable, but powder blue was the opposite. It was mostly unacceptable. And occasionally it became acceptable. Okay, now let's look at urea compared to methylene urea. Now, this is a product that we all use or all have used and is very common. This is probably in your uh, turfgrass program right now, today. If you go and look in your bag, it's going to say, you know, well, it could say methylene urea. Let's look what happened on Kentucky bluegrass over three years in Pennsylvania. The, the turfgrass response to methylene urea at the beginning of 1982 was acceptable, probably close to a f- three and a half or four. I'm looking right here, guys and gals. The turfgrass response to urea was a full point higher at five. It was maxed out on the quality scale, so it couldn't get any better, basically. As the turfgrass response to these nitrogen sources, as the turfgrass continued to grow, the, and the, the, the cycle of that application you know, continued or it went on, the, the turfgrass response declined. So you'll see this, this dotted line here in this panel is the same as this dotted line because they're both urea, okay? And you'll see dec- and the turfgrass response to urea declines, but so too does the turfgrass response to methylene urea. And the entire time, the turfgrass response to methylene urea is below urea. And the turfgrass response to methylene urea eventually becomes unacceptable. It, becomes, it goes below this, this three line.
0: I wonder if I can draw a line on this thing. Let's see if I can draw a line. Here, a line. So I'm going to put a line right here across this, this thing. Can I change that? I can I'm a little bit too big, let me make it smaller, okay, so that whoops, so that oh man, I had it <clears throat> so this line
1: here that I'm putting on here is the turf is the minimum quality scale line or whatever. so when the line when the quality goes below that line is when it's unacceptable, and you'll see in the first cycle urea never went below that line. Methylene urea did go below that line in the, in, this, in, the, in the first year, sorry. And you'll see that pretty much across the board where whenever the turfgrass responds, it always responds at a higher magnitude and stays acceptable for longer periods using urea than using
0: methylene urea, okay? You're going to see the same thing on Wednesday, 30 years later on Bermuda
1: grass. This is on Kentucky bluegrass. Urea will be, turfgrass response to urea uh, after it's been out there for two or three months, the turfgrass quality will, will go down. As you see here, the turfgrass quality does decline below that limit, below this, this line in this zone here, for sure. So too does the turf from the other nitrogen sources. So, this concept, this idea that you can apply urea and you're going to have to reapply it in four to six weeks might hold true in some cases, but it might also hold true from the, sol- the slow release sources as well. This is, a re- again, what I'm saying, when you shouldn't be going out, unless you, you're aware and understand how to do these trials, shouldn't just be going out and throwing out any, anything you want, however you want, because if you're not comparing it to the right sources and the right rates and you're not controlling the water, you're going to put out methylene urea, just like this shows right here. Well, the turf grass was um, acceptable in these limits, in these areas here that was acceptable. Yeah, I'm not saying it wouldn't be. What I'm saying is, how would it be relative to a, a reference material that's less expensive than that? And in this case, you see very clearly that urea has a greater magnitude and greater longevity. The turfgrass response has a greater magnitude and a greater longevity than the same amount of nitrogen from methylene urea in year one, in year two, and in year three. Okay, Only at the very end of year three was there a little bit of separation where methylene urea, the turfgrass response to methylene urea here at the very, very tail end was a little bit higher than the turfgrass response to urea. In pretty much every other case, the turf grass was always superior using urea than methylene urea. I'm going to skip this here, this panel here, because it contains products we don't will no longer use. This is urea compared to this experimental fluff. I'm not going to talk about that either because, again, we don't use it. Here's the oxamide. And again, I'm not going to talk about that because it has oxamide. We don't use that anymore. All right, well, maybe it was never available. Now let's look at the. Um, The, that has oxamide too. Uh, Let's look at the sulfur coats. Somewhere in here, the sulfur coat, I thought they had comparison to sulfur coats.
0: Oh, so this would be half urea, half sulfur coat. Where is that thing? I thought they just had urea compared to sulfur coat, but I don't see it. The urea... Son of a gun. Well, well, it's the same peaks. We just don't have it overlaid on this chart, unfortunately. Yeah. Well, let's go. Let's go to the urea
1: and millorganite, i guess the urea this is the four-fifths urea and one-fifth sulfur coat product so this, this majority the 80 of this is straight urea i thought they would have had urea you can i mean you can you can compare it using the the peaks here these peaks are going to be the same peaks they just didn't put it on the other charts so you can see that you know, it goes up and then goes down and goes up and goes down and go, so we can roughly after each application there's a turf grass response that's you know a couple months long, depending on when it was applied. The first season it was completely acceptable the entire time. And then, then you see the peaks on the next two years from urea. You see the peaks go up and then the, and then the valleys go down from following urea. So let's try to keep that in mind. So, roughly speaking, when you see this this dotted line here, it says 80% of this is from urea. It roughly follows these peaks, give or take, because it's mostly urea, soluble urea. Anyway, um, so when it comes to the milorganite, you'll see that here. Milorganite on the, this solid line here, guys. I'm going to move this up and
0: zoom in if I can, make sure Milwaukee uh, sees this. They're going to love it. So, mil uh, the
1: milorganite with the turfgrass response to milorganite in the first season only became acceptable after. A month and it was only acceptable for maybe a month at the most and then it went back down so it was mostly below three during the first season whereas when urea was applied with 80% urea and 20% sulfur coat the turf grass was mostly acceptable it went up and went back down below acceptable limits for a brief period and then it went right back up and stayed above acceptable limits the remainder of the of the first year in 1982 in the second uh, um, season 1983 the application occurred here, right here, and you'll see that the turfgrass response to the 80% urea and 15, 20% sulfur coat went up above acceptable limits and stayed up above acceptable limits for quite a while until August of 1983. So it was applied in June, and it stayed acceptable until August of 1983, whereas the turfgrass response to malorganite was slightly below acceptable limits pretty much the entire time, and then it d- took a dive down in August and September. Uh, of 1983 and it kind of went back up after that next application but for the most part the entire year of 1983 the turfgrass response to milorganite was not acceptable whereas the majority of the time in 1983 the turfgrass response to a fertilizer containing 80 percent urea was acceptable in 1984 we see the turfgrass response to milorganite being again the solid line we and the turfgrass actually does go up above acceptable limits goes back down and back up and then and then hangs out around that 3 mark. Let me put a line there. I don't want to mess this up. So this line here represents the acceptable limit. And this is a little bit
0: big, isn't it? Let me look, reduce that. I can't quite see through it. One. Okay. There we go. Now I'm cooking. Okay. So in this, in the second year,
1: oh, I'm sorry, in the third year, you'll see molorganite does come up above this acceptable limit a couple times and is below the acceptable limit, you know, a fair amount of time. Whereas the fertilizer containing urea goes well above the line after that, following this um, application. The application occurred right here. You see the, the, the spike in um, quality uh, go up, the color go up, but then it goes back down and it, it, actually, it is actually below acceptable limits um, in July and August of 1984. So if you just look across that line and look at the solid line, the majority of the solid line, which is uh, the millorganite line, is almost always below acceptable limits. There's a couple of peaks where it goes above the acceptable limit from 1982 all the way through 1984. There's one, two, three, four, four tiny little peaks that barely go above the line. Whereas the response to, to urea, there are the, the, the peaks that go above the line are substantial and they go all the way to the top to five. And they do go below line after you know once the application starts of peters out, but the quality of the response is substantially higher than that line for a long period, certainly longer than malorganite, and far longer than the sludge compost. The sludge compost is this dotted line, and it never was acceptable. You see this line down here at the bottom; it was ones and twos pretty much from 1982 all the way to 1984 from the sludge compost. Okay, so you know. It, it it is what it is. It just doesn't seem to be a whole lot of evidence to support the use of morganite in 1982, 83, and 84 on Kentucky bluegrass compared to urea. All right. Not only was it not comparable to urea, in many cases the, the morganite didn't even result in acceptable turf grass for three consecutive years on Kentucky bluegrass in Pennsylvania. I would say that's pr- fairly rare to not have acceptable turf grass at all from morganite in many cases you will. I mean, remember they're applying this at two pounds each application, so four pounds in a year. So they're putting out the right rate, but in this case they didn't see it. And in most cases that I've worked with, you will see acceptable turf grass from natural organics. It's just not going to be quite to the magnitude and it's going to cost a lot more to do that. However, they just didn't see that in this study. In this study, they didn't, they didn't find much benefit to applying these natural organics. It's hard to do any comparison with the with the blended fertilizers here on this graph because urea is not on the graph. You can kind of use this dotted line down here to kind of get an idea what your what would happen with uh, urea. I know this was a eighty percent urea. The actual response to um, urea was up here on these uh, these these graphs, a little higher on the left here. These were the actual responses to urea, and I I can't really just I can't. St- stick that on this graph down here i mean you could he just the author just didn't do it and so i'm it's kind of hard to just do a quick comparison of let me see what am i doing here it's a quick comparison of the blended fertilizer but i will say that it appears that the blended fertilizers that contain some soluble and some slow do have much more turf quality above the acceptable limit um, than some of the other pure slow release sources meaning that the oh this is the sulfur coat i'm sorry that's the sulfur coat there i'm i meant to do with this graph here so sulfur coat there's just a straight sulfur coat does have some peaks above the acceptable limit um and they do seem to be spread out a little bit more than straight urea but it's certainly nowhere near, they don't achieve the same magnitude of response as urea did and whether or not you know that's of value or interest to you. That's something, that's something up to you. But it seems like the urea peaks, which you can kind of see down here, are higher and they're steeper. In other words, they do decline quicker. The straight 100% sulfur coat does seem to be a little bit more spread out, but you just, you still see a fair amount of the turf response being unacceptable from straight sulfur coat.
0: I'd say it's probably split half and half. Half the time it was acceptable, half the time it wasn't, which is... You know Probably about the same as urea. It's just the urea the, the
1: peaks and valleys are steeper with straight urea. It seems like that's just my take on it. when you When you have the blended these 30, the 32 nines and the 18 uh, whatever it was, 18 two nines, or whatever these, these were, I would say that the the response to these is a little bit more similar to urea. When you're looking at, I'm looking at this graph here and I'm looking at the peaks from the graph below, and you see these peaks from the 80% urea roughly following these peaks up here, and you see this peak here roughly following this peak, it's just the the, the peaks from the blended fertilizers don't seem to be near as high, and I don't really see a whole lot of extended longevity, like if, if you're looking at the longevity between this point and this point being in the second application, the first application of the second year, I don't see a whole lot of longevity compared to the urea peak in the graph below. It's roughly the same length of response, right? If you look at the length of response on the the second application of the second year, the length of response is roughly the same length of response as from urea. So what I'm getting at is is that I, I don't see a whole lot of difference that would convince me to spend more money on a blended product in this case compared to just using straight urea. That's what I would say from those from those graphs. Let's look at the effect of in-source on fresh clipping weights, these are actually data we can look at. There's numbers. It's a little difficult to make your way through some of those graphs if, graphs if they're not together or there's not numbers on them to compare them. But I just wanted to point out that the effect of in-source on fresh weight clipping yields, you'll, I highlighted urea and ammonium nitrate in yellow, and you'll see there's there's A's here, and there's A's here, and so forth. And, and for the most part, the clipping yields were greater uh, from the urea and ammonium nitrate treated turf grass. The year totals were both A's, meaning that any other uh, number in this column that does not contain an A is different from urea and ammonium nitrate. And the year total for the next um, the next season was also A's. And then the uh, so to make a long story short is, if you look through here, you'll find that pretty much all of these, with the exception of this particular blended product here, had growth uh, uh, fresh clipping yields a little bit lower than straight urea and then you had another one here of sulfur coat and half urea that was that had an a in it you know the summation of this is turf grass was growing more from urea and ammonium nitrate there's no indication as to whether or not it was growing too much i.e you're you're baling hay or you're scalping it they didn't have those data in here but the turfgrass response in terms of quality was was noted in those graphs it was clear that urea was the turfgrass was responding very well to urea whereas some of the other sources it wasn't and when you look at the data in terms of fresh clipping yield the growth of the turf that also um uh, indicates that the turfgrass response to urea was greater than pretty much all the other nitrogen sources for the most part and ammonium nitrate was the same as urea so soluble in sources in this case resulted in greater growth and resulted in greater quality and resulted in a similar uh, length of response to nearly all the other nitrogen sources. Now we go down to the effective in-source on in-uptake. Now this is what I get sometimes when they say, well, the efficient use is greater using slow release, which again, you know, that can be shown. It's possible. But in this case, it wasn't shown. This is looking at the amount of nitrogen that was taking up in grams per square meter. You can actually do a, a percentage of applied because you know how much he applied per square meter. They didn't do that. That's fine. Um, he applied he applied 4.9 grams or he applied 9.8 grams per square meter. He did it twice a year. So you can kind of roughly see how much they pulled out on the turf grass if you wanted to do that math. But here you see two A's in the total yearly total in 1982 and three combined. And then 1983 and four, the yearly total, I guess he grouped them in that way, is over here for urea. ammonium nitrate and you'll see that they had the highest nitrogen uptake of any of the other nitrogen sources in fact there's only one here that again the the half urea half sulfur coat looks like
0: yeah it looks like it was equivalent to straight urea and there's another one in here so there's a couple of them that are
1: equivalent with straight urea Nothing exceeded the nitrogen uptake from urea. So, yeah, nothing exceeded the nitrogen uptake to urea. There's one or two treatments in here that are comprised, at least partially, by urea. In one case, it's half of it was urea. In the other case, well, actually, in both cases, half of it was urea. So the, and then the other half had some slow release component to it. There's another one. Oh, that one wasn't available, so I'm not going to talk about that one. The methylene urea, as, as, you have, as, as I've mentioned, is not uh, anywhere near the uptake um, from urea. Did I show methylene urea on those graphs? Oh yeah, I did. Okay, yeah, I did. So the growth rate was greater using urea. The nitrogen uptake was greater urea, from urea, meaning the nitrogen use efficiency was greater using urea than most, pretty much any other nitrogen source. And the only other nitrogen sources that compared to urea contained large components of soluble urea. Okay, let's get to the, the end here. I have some things highlighted in red that I want to mention. The, um, yeah, the high nitrogen, oh, hang on. Oh, okay, so this was, <laughs> this was the quality. Let's see what this was. Yeah, this is in color and growth. Let me read this red part here. Overall, the natural organic nitrogen sources, the organite and the sludge compost, gave low uniform turf responses throughout the study. Milorganite gave a consistently higher color response and greater yields than the sludge compost, but under the conditions of the experiment, the sludge compost was unacceptable as a nitrogen source. So that's the sludge compost, not The Mil-organite. Milorganite was better than the sludge compost, but they, the 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 uh, the color response was very low. That's what they stated. Now we look at nitrogen uptake. High nitrogen uptake was associated with periods of high color ratings and clipping yields. So color ratings, and clipping yields resulted in a relationship with nitrogen uptake. For example, quick releasing nitrogen sources resulted in high nitrogen uptake in periods following fertilization, while the greater residual effect of IBDU was exhibited by the highest uptake values in the spring. The more efficient nitrogen sources were the soluble in combinations containing mostly soluble nitrogen, and the least effective source was the sludge compost. So if they'd taken out the sludge compost, they'd probably say the least effective was the natural organic, the biosolid. <laughs> okay, now we get to the conclusions. The greatest initial growth in color responses for fo- following fertilization occurred with soluble nitrogen sources and combinations of soluble and slow-release nitrogen sources. Slowest to produce a response following applications were IBDU and oxamine, which I didn't go over. Soluble sources can be used in conjunction with sources to hasten response. Residual responses were most apparent in the spring prior to fertilization and in the late summer of 1984. Residual effects were greatest with IBDU, oxamide, and sulfur coat. Use of such materials in the fall would eliminate the need for early spring fertilization. We've talked about fall fertilization before. We have a whole playlist on it. With urea formaldehyde reaction products, so the methylene ureas, Response decreased as the amount of nitrogen, as water-insoluble nitrogen, increased in the product. So the, the more carbons you stick on that nitrogen, the, the longer it's going to take to break it down. And the, the response, the turfgrass response, is also is going to be decreased. And like I said, I have a friend in uh, middle of Florida, uh, Central Florida, one of the biggest lawn care companies in Central Florida. And they still, to this day, swear by using methylene ureas because they swear it's the least expensive. And time after time after time, the the literature has shown that the turfgrass response to methylene urea is nowhere near as good as straight urea or any of the other soluble sources like sulfur-coated urea or even polymer-coated urea. The turfgrass response is generally greater using those sources than methylene urea. And then when you run the cost of methylene urea, including the turfgrass response, the methylene ureas are many times greater than urea and several times greater than some of the other slow-release sources. So there's just not a lot of evidence to support the use of methylene ureas if you're going to use uh, if you, if your intention is to use the most cost-effective source. And right here they state um, that you know the methylene ureas th- that the response decreased as the amount of in as water insoluble nitrogen increased. So the the longer it lasts, and the slower it is, the the, de- the the response is going to be decreased. The more soluble products were more. F- were more efficient nitrogen sources for two years. The more soluble products were more efficient nitrogen sources for two years. However, residual response from the less soluble products were apparent at the end of the study in 1984. And that's what I was saying with this, this last part here. I'm going to go back up to this graph. The last part here where you see, this is what he's talking about. And this this is methylene urane, urea. You don't see your methylene urea doing much at all compared to urea, but the very, very end of the 1984 study and in the, uh, July and August, you start to see methylene urea have a little bit better quality. I believe that's what he's referring to, this residual nitrogen effect. But whether or not you would continue to see that, we don't know in this study because th- the study ended. There is this concept that, that the residual nitrogen will stay in the soil and slowly build up. There may be something there. There may not be something there, but I haven't seen much evidence to support that. This may just be a phenomenon or maybe a, a quirk or maybe a it may be reality. It may actually be occurring. I don't know. But it's certainly not enough to convince me that these methylene ureas, over prolonged periods of time, are going to result in enough nitrogen to you know, offset the additional cost at, at the beginning of the, of, the, of the application for me. I could be convinced, though, if someone shows me some, some evidence. I just haven't seen enough to, to convince me. Response differences with sulfur coat urea were associated with the dissolution rate and the particle size. Products with the higher dissolution rate gave quicker responses and less spring residual than products with lower dissolution rate. So, really, real simple. The higher soluble um, dissolution rates had earlier responses and delayed and very little late responses. And the the thicker coatings and the the heavy sulfur coatings had virtually no initial response and had a better later response. It's. Very consistent in the literature. Shlu- sludge compost was ineffective as a turf grass fertilizer. When, when the compost was amended with urea to bring the nitrogen content up to 6%, up to 6%, response was similar to that obtained from soluble sources. Millorganite gave one of the lower responses during the study. However, response was relative, un- relatively uniform. And a residual effect from this natural organic source was noted in late summer of 1984. So what he's talking about there is this millorganite right here. So millorganite, this this gap here, this increase here, is what I think what he's talking about is this increase in light, late 1984, where it, I think this is what he's referring to in J- July, August, and September of 1984. The turfgrass response to millorganite was marginal; it was below the acceptable limit, but it was. Seemed like it was moving slightly up, I guess is what you, he, he, I think that's what the author is saying. I mean, you could see the same thing here at the end of this, where it's moving slightly up this way at the beginning of 1982, but in 1984,
0: I think that's what he's referring to. I wanted to have this author on so I wouldn't screw this paper up, but he wasn't available.
1: Okay. Quick acting nitrogen sources need to be applied more frequently than slow release sources to obtain this uniform. Oh wait, let me just read the first part. Turf color and yield were correlated with nitrogen uptake. Thus, darker color and greater yields reflected a greater efficiency of the applied nitrogen. In practice, uniformity of response throughout the growing season must also be considered. Quick-acting nitrogen sources need to be applied more frequently than slow-release sources to obtain this uniformity. I'm not sure exactly how he, he, he gets to that conclusion. Based upon the data I've seen in the paper, there's a little bit there but it seems to me like the, the response to urea was greater and uh, the, the, the time that the turf grass was acceptable was as good or better than any other source in most cases. So I'm not sure where he's pulling that from. Maybe he can expand on that further if he's able to. Able to. In long care situations where quick response and repeated visits are desired, soluble sources alone or in combination with slow release sources are appropriate. I'm going to come back to me and say that again. Okay. The author says at the end, in lawn care situations where quick response and repeated visits are desired, soluble sources alone, or in combination with slow release nitrogen sources, are appropriate. And for those of you who have taken advantage of the online um, meetings that that I provide, you'll probably get that feeling when I'm talking to you is that there's this concept and in indoctrination that we've gone through about you need these slow release materials. You have to have them. You have to have them. There's good reasons to include these slow release materials. I'm not going to deny that. But in many cases, straight soluble nitrogen, if applied correctly, you don't want to go out there with three pounds of nitrogen. You don't want to go out there with some crazy rates and start you know, increasing your potential environmental risk. But if you're going to, come, if you're going to go on their property in four-week cycles or eight-week cycles, Soluble nitrogen is probably going to last that long. The turfgrass response to, to soluble urea, soluble ammonium sulfate, calcium nitrate, potassium nitrate, any of these soluble nitrogen sources, the turfgrass response is probably going to be perfectly fine until you show up again. And, and particularly if you're at four-week cycles. If you're at eight-week cycles, you're probably fine. If you're at 12-week 12 12 cycles and you're showing up every 12 weeks, you know, we can start to go down those roads. You might have, there might be a little bit there to kind of help bridge that a little bit further and depending on where you are and what kind of grass you're growing but in most cases the soluble nitrogen is going to be the the option to stay with until you have a good reason to move away from it and like I said these authors say right here very clearly in lawn care situations soluble sources alone or in combination with slow releases are what you're going to want to go with that's pretty clear guys and it ain't going to change on Wednesday. I'm <laughs> just saying. On Wednesday, I'm going to put dollars and cents to this. I'm going to put how much does it cost to actually result in turf grass response using urea, using ammonium sulfate, using methylene urea, using sulfur-coated urea, using polymer-coated urea, using milorganite. How much does it actually cost you? Because a lot of these old papers... Have turf responses and all this great stuff in them, but well, not even the old papers, even the new papers, very few papers have the actual cost in turf grass at least we don't we don't say this is what it's going to cost per per acre per thousand square feet for if you use urea. this is what's going to cost per acre using you know sulfur coated urea or whatever we don't usually have those data, but we do what we will on
0: Wednesday night, okay, let me go into the uh the chat here. See if there's anything you all want me to discuss or answer before I go. <clears throat> Garden Earth Guy, good morning. I see you popped in there. Yeah, Milorganite, or melorganide. IBDU used
1: to be the the one to go to. You know, at 3100, it ends up being more expensive than pretty much everything else. But we can't really. You can still get it. I mean, you can still get Milorganite, Believe it or not, it's just not really available to you know as 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 easily as it used to be and it's and it's rather expensive on a pound cost per pound to end
0: basis so i don't know about the cattle feed stuff gardener earth guy i'm not familiar with that i don't know turf nerd good morning so gar- turf nerd Turf nerd says a lot. Say slow release in heat,
1: but is that possible? It is, or is it possible it kicks in at a point where it might not need ideal as it might not be ideal as you can't control that. I think I think there's some typos or something in there, but I think what I'm what I'm reading from that question, turf nerd is use a slow release in heat, but at some point is it going to get too hot and start releasing everything, and and that might not be the most suitable source or whatever the case is for you um i suppose it's possible the the, the, on again on wednesday night we're going to be doing it uh applications year-round in florida where it's 85 90 degrees the entire summer and raining like heck okay so we're going to see what happens with these slow release nitrogen sources
0: when it's hot and when it's wet in florida and um I'll just say that it's possible that if it, you know
1: if somehow it gets hot and you have too much down, it's, I suppose it's possible you could have a flush
0: of growth if that's what you're hinting at there, turf nerd. Um, but it's going to depend on the nitrogen source, the rate, turf grass, the location where you're at. But I would say I
1: wouldn't worry about it a whole lot. We just haven't seen that happen a whole lot. If you're going to have that flush of growth, the question would be, would it occur as a result of the nitrogen source, the slow-release nitrogen source, compared to the soluble nitrogen source? Right. the 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 benefits of these slow-release nitrogen sources, at least in my opinion, are are few and far between. But let me let me just, and I'm I'm going to get into them eventually. But generally speaking, the benefit is. You're reducing, it's, it, they provide a buffer, basically. You're reducing some potential risk in a variety of areas. So the risk of environmental contamination is lower using slow release. But I would say <clears throat> the risk of environmental contamination is pretty low using soluble, as long as you know what you're doing. I used this analogy the other night where if I'm going to go hunting with somebody, I, I grew up shooting firearms my entire life. Okay, I mean shotguns and two eighties, not two seventies, two eighties. I mean it's a different type of weapon. Fifty cal's, whatever, BB guns, twenty twos, whatever you want to do. I've shot my whole life, and when I go out with someone who's never, let's say, let's say I go out with my my son who's never held a weapon in his life, do I want to hand him a two eighty rifle? You know, or do I want to hand him a BB gun when he first starts to learn? They both do the same thing. They both fire a projectile. but the risk involved with a BB gun is quite or the the chances of of causing harm with a BB gun is quite low compared to a two eighty. You make a mistake with a two eighty you could kill somebody. make a mistake with a BB gun. <clears throat> it's very unlikely. And I use that analogy to say if you know what you're doing with nitrogen sources, you can hold the, the, the firearm, you can hold that weapon, you can hold ammonium nitrates and the ureas, no problem. You can put them out, no problem. Okay. But I don't know if I would necessarily put a, you know, 50-pound bag in an 80-pound spreader push it of urea with someone who I, who I just hired and they have no clue how to spread fertilizer. Okay. I'd, I'd probably want to give them something a little safer, like a 100% sulfur coat, you know. Or something that I know if they make a mistake, the risk is reduced, right? I can at least vacuum up the prills if he dumps it in the middle of the yard, you know, before it kills the grass or something. You know, if he doesn't know how to open the hopper up as he's pushing it and close it before he stops it and all these things. If you don't know what you're doing, I'd rather have you with a safer product than with a hot product. But if you know what you're doing, no problem. Right, so I think that's a value of slow-release materials that um, that I would say is a good reason to include, especially with your newer employees who you don't have a lot of confidence in applying it correctly. The redu- reduction in environmental contamination is very low with slow release. It's also slow with soluble. I don't want to I don't want to say soluble is high. It's 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 the potential is high if you don't know what you're doing. But in reality, if you know what you're doing, the risk is quite low with both. And then the risk of burn is quite low with slow release right so if you have a a slow release product like a milorganite you have essentially no risk of burn at all now would you believe me if i told you that the the risk of burn from urea and ammonium sulfate is much greater than milorganite there's no question
0: but excuse me but would you believe me if i told you that i've put out I messed up the camera here. Hang on a second, guys. I'm blurred. (laughs) My camera's messed up. Sorry, guys. You're going to have to just deal with it if you're on YouTube. I've put
1: out 10 pounds of nitrogen from urea and ammonium sulfate and calcium nitrate, potassium nitrate, milorganite, polyon, you name it. 10 pounds of N, not product. 10 pounds of N and not burn the grass because I knew what I was doing and I applied the appropriate amount of water, I applied it at the right time of day and so forth. So what I'm saying is you you can result in tremendous amount of death in turf grass if you don't know what you're doing. With the same product, you can result in zero death of turf or burn if you know what you're doing. So I don't wanna hammer on these slow release materials and say you shouldn't use them, there is value to them. But if you know what you're doing, you're looking for the most efficient product and the most efficient program the the paper yesterday clearly indicated that urea was at the top of the list and the natural organics were probably at the bottom of the list (laughs) and the paper today said the same thing the soluble nitrogen sources consistently resulted in the greatest amount of quality resulted in a fair amount of longevity for that quality and the other products whenever you blended it with it the quality was reduced the longevity might have been extended a little bit with some of the slow releases but clearly, if you're doing 100% slow release with the natural organics and some of the sulfur coats, um, they didn't compare it at all favorably with straight urea. Now, this was all with older products, older sulfur-coated products. Okay, We're going to get into the newer polymer-coated products and you know, the newer sulfur-coated products and so forth. We're going to move into that direction real quick. In fact, we'll be there on Wednesday night. Okay, But when we, we're talking about the paper yesterday and the paper today. Remember, it contains a fair amount of products that weren't available and even the products that are available there's they've gone through many iterations and they've they've progressed and, and adjusted those products over time so you might not be dealing today with the exact same product in the past having said that in general those paper the paper yesterday and the paper today clearly indicate that you should stick you should put a lot of confidence and a lot of your programs should be weighted on a urea and if you're going to move away from that just have a good reason okay and um and that's that guys Last couple of questions. Oh, Matt popped in. Hi, Matt. How are you? Good to see you. Uh, somehow I'm not seeing the same thing in in this. Let me, let me go back up here. Hang on. Now. Okay. So it seems, Valerio says, it seems that slow-release fertilizer does not release all the nitrogen that they have. Maybe temperature not very high. Yeah. Well, the slow-release nitrogen within the growing season, Almost never release all the nitrogen they have. There's going to be some residual nitrogen. The polymer coats are going to have some nitrogen in them that stay in there. It's going to be a very small amount, but there's going to be some in there that last many months. When he's talking about residual nitrogen from the natural organics or from the methylene ureas, he's talking about the actual component hasn't broken down thoroughly, you know, broken down completely yet. And over time, if you didn't, let's say you you put it out and 98% broke down in the first year, we got 2% left. And then the next year, you did the same thing, and now that 2% compounds to another 2%, right, or whatever. You can kind of follow. It's not exactly the case, but you can kind of follow the idea that there's going to be some residual in from prior applications. And that's just the the really water-insoluble component that takes a long time to break down. Whether or not there's any value to that in the turf grass is another question. So Matt says, I'm strongly considering using a year-round release fertilizer for a base, then spoon feed for color and growth growth rate after.
0: So we're not going to go, let me think about this. Um, I'm trying to think of a paper that did that. I I can't think of a paper off the top of my head that's put out, let's say four pounds of N
1: with 100% polymer coat or something along those lines. And you just did one pound and you had your foundation of nitrogen, and you just kind of went in and your secondary and third, you know, your other applications might have been liquids or herbicides or whatever the case is, or just treatments or wetting agent, whatever. So you had your foundation laid. I can't think of a paper that investigated that specifically. Anecdotally, I'll say I've, I've done some work on that anecdotally. So I'm saying anecdotally because I have never published it. Anecdotally, in, in my opinion, that's really the only scenario i can think of where the cost of these polymer coats might actually be worth it in other words if you're going to if you're going to have let's say this is the longevity of your treatment. so let's say i'm holding my hands up for those listening let's say the longevity of your application is or your, your season is this long the shorter um, the closer and, and let's say you had a nitrogen source that lasted that long well what we're doing is we're cutting it, when we're only doing it this long, and we're only doing it in by half or a quarter. In other words, we're doing multiple applications. Well, when you reduce it down, every time you reduce a little bit of the longevity down from, let's say, theoretically, you had one application that lasted the entire season, and you reduce that longevity down and down and down and down, the closer you're getting to urea, that's a reality. You're getting closer and closer to the longevity of urea, the, 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 the less and less time you, really, you, you have that nitrogen release for. So if you're going to compete with urea on a cost basis on a how much does it actually cost to produce this product being the lawn or the sport field or whatever you've got to get further away from urea on longevity you've got to get way out there because urea is going to last a lot longer than you think guys the turf grass response to urea is going to last a fair amount of time so if you're going to compete with it you got to get way out there way out there and if you're going to do one application for the entire season that is a possibility. I'm saying that the potential's there that it could financially compete with straight urea because it's rare. You're probably never going to get a urea maybe in the north somewhere where it's you have short seasons or something, but you're not going to get the turfgrass response to urea lasting four months, five months, six months. You're not going to get that. So the question is, can you get that from another product? I'm pretty confident you can get that from another product. The question is, how much would it cost? So, I, I don't know if I'd jump in with both feet, Matt, but I mean, if you're considering that, I would say that there is, at least
0: anecdotally, a little bit of evidence to support that approach. So, Hofgard, oh, that's, um, um, oh, help me with uh, the name you, you prefer Bert.
1: I think, your name, I think you preferred Bert. So, you relate to Enter. It says Can wedding agents influence
0: or optimize nutrient uptake? The, um, again, I'm thinking of a, of a study. Let me think if I can think of a study that did that. I'm sure something exists in the literature.
1: I can't think of a study off the top of my head. But I will say, and again, just in my opinion, don't take it as, as fact yet until, I show you, until I'm able to show you something. But in my opinion, I think it, I, I think it would in unsaturated soils. So in unsaturated soils, there's clearly evidence that the application of wetting agents will help the, help the movement of, uh, of salts and sodium in unsaturated soils. In saturated soils where the, the soil, or not saturated soil, but, but field, field capacity soils or soils that are already moist, the application of wetting agents would have minimal effect on nutrient uptake. But in unsaturated soils where the roots are exposed to areas that don't have much moisture, the wetting agent uh, is very likely going to help um, increase the uniformity or the distribution of that moisture in the in the rooting zone. In those cases, the potential at least exists to increase the the nutrient uptake by the plant in an un, un, unsaturated soils. That is
0: possible, but I, I can't think of a paper off the top of my head that that shows that. I'll look for it. Excellent question, Bert. Turf nerd says. I plan on only using quick
1: release as I did last year. I don't feel a need to need in slow release. I have ammonium sulfate and Umax, so determining which one would be best. You're determining which one would be best between ammonium sulfate and Umax. Are you sure, it's Umax and not Uflex because Wednesday night
0: we're going to have a react. We're going to have. I think I used. I think I used Uflex. I think. Hang on, let me see here. Paper on. Wait, let me minimize this. I don't want to. Hang on a second. Can I get this without showing that? You see what happens if I do this. Uh, you're going to see that. Um. What was the one I used? Uflex. I used Uflex, which is you know a similar product, <laughs> but um.
1: It's a similar, similar product as UMAX. I think it just contains greater quantities of one of the, one of the uh, components versus the other. But you'll see that on Wednesday. If, you want, if, you're, if you're vacillating on whether to use ammonium sulfate or UMAX, you will ha- I will show you very clear evidence on UFLEX as to which one would be likely to be the, best, the most cost-effective source to consider.
0: And compared to the other nitrogen sources as well. Turf Nerd says you're also in Northern Maryland. There's a lot of people from New England, you know, that, that general area. So,
1: Ground Up Organic says, uh, he asked this late yesterday, would pH be the only factor when choosing between using urea or ammonium sulfate? No, 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 no. I'm sorry if I missed that yesterday, Ground Up Organic, but no, pH is not the only factor when you're deciding whether you use ammonium sulfate or whether you're using urea. It is a factor, you know, for sure. If if I were interested in for some reason adjusting pH downward, which I'm not saying do that, but if I were interested in doing that, then you'd want to use ammonium sulfate. So that's what you're saying. You know, is, is pH the only factor, so you'd want to be aware of that. Um but the other factor that I well there's two several factors I include when I'm deciding whether what nitrogen source to use. I want to know how much does it cost to result in that response, and, the, and I'll just say that the basic bolts, nuts, and bolts of Wednesday night is use the cost per pound of nitrogen when comparing nitrogen sources. That's the most consistently reliable method. So if if the urea is let's say the urea is forty six oh oh, and the urea is, let's say it costs um, this round number, let's say it costs thousand dollars ton.
0: Well, actually, let me see if I have it on this thing. When I did this study. Is there a way I can? Let me see here. Let me, let me do that. Yeah, huh.
1: Okay. So, when, when I did this study years ago, the urea cost $643 a ton, and ammonium sulfate cost at the time $537 a ton. Okay. Mm-hmm. So, your ammonium sulfate costs less per ton than ammonium, uh, ammonium sulfate costs less per ton than urea did at the time. But the cost per pound of N. For urea, at the time, was seventy cents per pound of N, and from ammonium sulfate was a dollar twenty-eight per pound of N. So, roughly speaking, ammonium sulfate was a little bit less than twice as expensive as urea per pound of nitrogen. So, when I'm considering using urea or ammonium sulfate, that's what I'm looking at. How much does it, if I can get urea on a sale? I'm sorry, if, if I can get ammonium sulfate on sale somewhere, and it costs less than the, than the price of urea, then I would use ammonium sulfate assuming that you know the ph of my soil is not four or 4.5 i mean in other words if the ph is already low i don't know if i'd be putting ammonium sulfate out there but i'm looking at the price per pound of in first probably second i'd want to know what a ph of the soil is like eh, if i already if my ph is neutral then use either one what, a, what doesn't make any difference uh whichever one is the least expensive but third to that which is I'll get into, and it's going to be probably a year because I'm, I'm trying to get this thing published and there's a paper I want to get published before I talk about this too much. But third, the third important factor is the sulfate levels in your soil. So if, in, in many cases, and, and you'll know this from applying urea, if you've applied urea and you don't see a really good response, there's a pretty good chance you have a sulfate deficiency. And you, you'll know that from a Mehlich 3 soil test, but you have to ask for sulfur because they're not going to just give it to you um, Automatically, the, the lab's not going to tell you that automatically. So, um, if you ask for a sulfur and a sulfur test, and your sulfur numbers are single digits, you know nine or less, ten or less, something like that. If they're single digits, then I might want to consider using ammonium sulfate rather than urea. If they're double, if they're double digits, then you're probably safe. So, those are three criteria that I use: the cost per pound of N, urea, and ammonium sulfate the pH of the soil between you um, which one would I want what I want to use and then what are my sulfate levels or am I see, am I seeing the response I want to see from urea if I am from urea then I'll just probably stay with urea if I'm not from urea I might want to do some investigation to see what my sulfur levels are and if they're low I might switch to ammonium sulfate okay those those are sort of the criteria that I use um my thought process when going through
0: those those particular those two particular nitrogen sources Uh, so matt says they have products that last all season are very affordable you
1: will throw down about 10 pounds per thousand the mix has different release times
0: <clears throat> yeah so yeah matt if you're so inclined on wednesday night you know you may uh pop in and know
1: ask those questions again or maybe when i'm online and have a, a phone number available we can talk about that more but i will say that i, I it, i'm just going to be a little difficult for me to find a paper on that like could you actually apply it and just last the entire season i i've personally done that in business before when i was in the industry i've done that on golf before it, it, it is possible i've done that in research before and where you put one out and it lasts the entire season, and um. So, But it's anecdotal. I haven't published it. I I will say that there is a fine line between getting enough on the ground to see a turf response and getting too much on the ground that results in environmental risk, i.e. nitrogen leaching. You will leach the heck out of nitrogen if you put out the wrong rate with the wrong coated material at the wrong time. And I fine-tuned that down in Fort Lauderdale where if you're putting out one pound, two pounds, five pounds, or ten pounds of nitrogen with these polymer codes, you'll eventually find the right combination of. This is the turf response I want. Any and if you put on any more, you're going to get a tremendous amount of leaching. But at that line, I didn't. I didn't see much leaching at all from this heavily coated, high rate application of polymer code. It is possible to do. Uh, I just don't know if it's financially comparable to. You know, another soluble or sulfur coated application, or whatever you want to do. I, I haven't ran the costs on that, so I would. I'm almost certain there's no there's no data on the cost of that sort of program relative to a cost of putting out urea two or three times a year, or whatever, sulfur coated two or three times a year. All right, guys, uh, that's that's all I got. I'll be back tomorrow morning. I appreciate all the chat in, in the in the, uh, in the today on the, on the video. It's great. I really appreciate you all's uh, part- participation. And I'll be back tomorrow morning with another nitrogen paper. And then I'll be back tomorrow night at 9 p.m. Uh, with the nitrogen cost, pro-longevity, and all this other stuff paper. Okay, guys, thanks, mu- thanks so much for showing up. I appreciate it. Be kind. I'll see you tomorrow morning. Bye.